prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, Steven Soderbergh on Let Them All Talk, a Sex, Lies, and Videotape sequel, and a very productive year in quarantine. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. I've said it before, I'll say it again, we're in the midst of a very cool little director run on Happy, Sad, Confused, and the beat goes on today with Steven Soderbergh, somebody I've wanted to have on the podcast for for forever. I mean, since I started the podcast five years ago, if you had asked me five or ten filmmakers I wanted on it, Steven Soderbergh would have been on the list. So thrilled that it finally happened. I have chatted with him uh, back in the day, um, but never in podcast form. And he is, um, you know, one of the smartest, most interesting filmmakers out there and has been for decades uh, since launching with Sex, Lies, and Videotapes. So there was a lot to talk about with the great Steven Soderbergh, and we cover a lot in this conversation. He is, as I said, having, uh, you know, a lot of us have slowed down in 2020. A lot of us kind of had to kind of reassess and figure out how we were going to work and live. But Steven Soderbergh seemed to, if anything, rev up his creative uh, juices this year. He finished three screenplays. He produced Bill and Ted. He directed a new film that is going to be out next year. And uh, he finished editing and has released the new HBO Max film, Let Them All Talk. So um, not surprising. I mean, if you look at Steven Soderbergh's career, he is not one to uh, be precious about material. He just he just barrels through and tries stuff and experiments. And um, it's always thrilling to see what he's up to. The new film, Let Them All Talk, is is a delightful film. It's gotten great reviews and, and, and well uh, warranted. It stars Meryl Streep, Diane Weist, and Candace Bergen. Um, and it, it takes place all on a cruise ship. And it's it's a very much a a conversational, um, you know, as Soderbergh talks about in this conversation, he's attracted to two people talking in a room at the end of the day. And this is very much that. Sometimes it's more than two people, and sometimes it's not a room. It's on the deck of a cruise ship. But the principle is sound. This is a uh, kind of a lightly comedic at times, dramatic at times, um, showcase for some great performances from three of our our best actresses. And... um, and yeah, it's 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 well worth your time. It's on HBO Max. Let them all talk is the film. I highly recommend it. But as I said, we cover a lot in this conversation. Um, I'm fascinated by the fact that Soderbergh has gone back to the beginning and has written a Sex Lies and Videotape sequel. We talk about that. That's fascinating. Um, we talk about his. Uh, you know, we go all the way back to Schizopolis. If you don't, if you know Soderbergh's work, his his career is so diverse, so bizarre, and not, nothing more bizarre than the film that he starred in called Schizopolis. We talk about his performance in that. Um, we talk about his uh, flirtation with directing a Bond film at one point. He actually was pursue- pursued or was pursuing a directing a James Bond film. I find that fascinating. Um, and of course, he's one of the smartest um, guys about the industry matters. So we, of course, talk about sort of the state of the industry and the future of film exhibition, and he's a lot to say on that. Not to mention a little bit on Contagion, too. Let's not forget that Steven Soderbergh had the, the film that, in retrospect, was maybe the most prescient about the year that we had in 2020. So we talk a little bit about that and whether he's considered a Contagion follow-up. So 
as I said, we cover a lot in this conversation, and he is—he uh, was and is a delight. So, so thrilled that he was on the podcast. Um, other things to mention. Well, one disclaimer on the Soderbergh conversation. We did uh, conduct this chat right before it was announced that he was going to be one of the producers of the 2021 Oscars. So, sadly, there's no reference to that in here, but I, for one, am thrilled that he's going to be on board for that because, again, you want a smart guy that knows film, and that is Steven Soderbergh. Um, other things to mention in the Josh Horowitz ecosphere as we head towards the end of 2020. New Stir Crazy episode out this week. Our last one of 2020 is with Chris Pine. He is <laughs> delightful and we had a good time. Um, he is, of course, promoting Wonder Woman 1984. Um, the usual um, assortment of silly games, ribbing about all the Chris's and where he stands in the rankings. Uh, Chris Pine was game for my shenanigans, and I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I did. That's on Comedy Central's YouTube and Facebook page. I'll put the link uh, in the show notes for this episode. Um, other things to mention, I also have an interview with Gal Gadot. I'll put that in the show notes as well for MTV News. Um, and I think posting this week is also my uh, interview with Tessa Thompson about her movie Sylvie's Love. So look out for that. A lot to come as we, as we finish up the insane year that was 2020. I'm happy to say all systems go on 2021. We've already uh, shot uh, stir-crazy episodes. We've already banked Happy Sad Confused episodes. So there will be no break. There'll be a small break for Stir Crazy, I should say, but there'll be no break for Happy, Sad, Confused. We're back next week with one more fantastic director before we say goodbye to 2020. Um, one other thing to mention, uh, I popped in on another podcast uh, this week. You should check out The Wake Up. I've mentioned this podcast before. It's a great kind of digest of all the media, um, uh, entertainment uh, news headlines in five to ten minutes done by my, by my buddy Sean McNulty. He interviewed me for that. We talk a little bit about the state of the industry, about what to expect from the Oscar season, what to expect at Sundance coming up in late January. Covered a lot of territory in that, and hopefully Sean uh, edited my rambling comments to make me seem semi-coherent. But uh, give that a listen. The Wake Up is the podcast. Uh, subscribe to it uh, everywhere you get. Uh, happy, sad, confused, and I, I hope you guys dig that as well. Um, all right, enough preamble. Let's get to the main event, Mr. Steven Soderbergh. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to Happy, Sad, Confused. Spread the good word. Here is my chat with Steven Soderbergh. Mr. Steven Soderbergh, welcome to the um, more dignified than ever Happy, Sad, Confused podcast. I mean, we have you here, so we must be doing something right. Thanks for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. By my count, in, in, uh, in 2020, the year when many of us kind of slowed to a crawl, you've written three screenplays, you produced Bill and Ted, you shot a movie, you're releasing a new movie. I, I love your output, but I also hate you for this, Stephen. Um, talk to me a little bit about, did the cadence of your work change this past year? Or it seems like it, it if anything, revved you up. Well, um, as soon as it became clear we were gonna have to hunker down. Um, we were in New York, my wife and I, when, the, uh, when things got bad in March. So I just had to sit down and figure out how to keep myself occupied. And there were several projects um, that were in my proximity that needed attention. And so I just started going through the list um, because otherwise, I would have gone a little batty. Right. And, you know, I think the last, since the summer, I think what's been hard for people 
is is the uncertainty. Um, I think there was this initial wave of like, oh, three months, I can kind of wrap my head around that. And when you got to the end of those three months and nothing had really changed enough to feel we were gonna be on the other side of it and then it started getting worse again. I think that level of uncertainty on the part of you know a couple of hundred million people is a is a very intense and real psychological factor in in our everyday lives like you can feel it you can yeah. literally feel it even if you're not out if you're communicating with your friends uh you can feel it it's it's tough was it I mean, by, by, by everything I've read, you, you've kind of shifted your focus in recent years away from writing, and yet you've, well, you worked on three different screenplays this year. Was that, is there any rhyme or reason to that? They were screenplays that you had already kind of done some work on? or Yeah, they, they, they ran the gamut. Um, one was something that I felt needed just a bit of a, a, a pass on um, a, new, a new approach. Um, one was an original, which was the Sex Lies sequel, and one was this adaptation of David Levine's novel, City of the Sun. These were all things that I'd thought about and were, like I said, sort of on my to-do list, but, right. but not flashing red. And um, seemed like those first three months felt like a really good time to, to kind of curl up and take a run at those, but you're right. I don't. I don't. Um, I, I've I've really walked away from uh, the idea of being a, a writer. I think I wrote. I wrote as a way of getting in, but I, I'm not a writer in the way that I consider um, other people to be writers. So, and everything got better when I started working with other writers as far as my directorial career went. So um, this was just necessity. Right. I was, I was totally alone and um, it was, it was a good thing for me to do. And again, I, I would think in particular for something like the Sex Lies continuation, that's your baby. That's something, as you said, you wrote as a, you know, to, to further your own career in the beginning, you know, those characters, you know, the story you want to tell, why farm that out to somebody else that feels intrinsically of you. Exactly. And, and I, felt like I had a fairly clear idea of what it was about and what it needed to be and where where two of the characters are now and what issues they're grappling with that are connected to the issues that they were dealing with in the first film. So it was, that one came out pretty quickly um, because like the first one, I'd been thinking about it for a while yeah. and then just sat down and started um, packing away. So we'll see what comes of any of those. But like I said, it was, it was a really good thing for me to do. It got me, you know, embedded in pure storytelling um, in a way that's, that's always going to be beneficial. Just being inside of something that way just helps you think about story yeah. in, a, in a fresh way. And I hadn't been that intimate with it in a while. So it was good for me.
as we tape this, we're at the, uh, we're in December. Uh, a tradition that I always look forward to is to see what you consumed uh, in terms of pop culture, TV, film, et cetera, at the end of the year. I like the, I'm, I'm looking forward to like the day where you watched The Queen's Gambit and three uh, times in a row watched Hubie Halloween, just because that's you. <laughs> you can go every which way. Um, yeah, there's some, there's, there's a range um, this <laughs> year. Certainly, yeah. certainly during the earlier part of the year, um, I had more time. To, to watch things, but um, what a, you know, what a fascinating process this has all been this year for people who make things and people who put them out. Um, we're, I think there's gonna be a lot of, as, as, as disruptive as it's been and painful um, for people, there's no question in my mind, there are gonna be some really interesting new ideas um, that evolve out of the activity that's going on now to just yeah. keep things kind of moving. Um, so I think there's, if, as bad as it is, if we're not able to extract something positive out of it, then that's doubly horrible. Did it did it affect the production that you just completed? The one I believe you shot where in Detroit with this um, amazing cast? Mostly mostly in a financial sense. Um, we were able to set up a system of protocols that that didn't slow the production down at all. Um, but the cost of it and the 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 psychological stress of it um, is is pretty palpable yeah uh, but we managed to get through it and um and that was a, a real accomplishment it's it's the good news is you know this can be done safely um you just have to be really rigorous about the protocols and more importantly you you really have to convince anybody who's not in a bubble if you're not able to create a bubble during the production um if people are going home, you really need them to buy in to being paranoid uh, during during the shoot um, because the the virus isn't going to originate on the set. It's got to be brought to the set. So if you can get everybody to really stay on board for the length of the production, you can do this. You can do it safely. And I think in a weird sort of way, there was some, you know, I was in one of the zones where I was being tested three times a week and um, you were, you and I was, we were living in the hotel bubble and I felt very safe. I, I felt, I felt like it was working and it did work. So it can be done. Your, your new film uh, is Let Them All Talk on, on HBO Max and um, you've made so many different types of films. You've made films that have been, you know, won Oscars. You've had films that have sadly been ignored by the public or critics and, and, and worse sometimes, I and mean, you've had it all. I'm curious, where do you, does the reception at this point mean more or less the same? Have you sealed yourself? I mean, this one thankfully is getting a really great reception. Does it matter in all honesty? Does it, is it about the process? Can it be about the process and the process alone? It's, for me, it's mostly about the process. Um, the response matters in a couple of different ways. The most, you know, obvious uh, being it affects the, the commercial life of the piece. Um, people go to see more things 
um, that are positively <laughs> reviewed than things that are slammed. So there, there's just that sort of economic reality that factors into the response. Um, and then there's the judging, which is very subjective on the part of the filmmaker, let's say in either direction, what, what should I extract from that response? Um, <laughs> is it all their fault or is part of it my fault? Um, and, and like I said, it can, that can work in the direction of having something be very positively viewed and, and very um, heavily watched. You, you, it's conceivable to find yourself in a scenario in which something that you feel ambivalent about um, is not creating a sense of ambivalence in the, in the wider world. And what are you supposed to extract from that? Yeah, that um, disconnect so must it, be it, so disorienting. It's bizarre. Yeah, even, I, even I, would argue, I would yeah. argue it's even, it would even be more disorienting um, so than the opposite. But for me, it doesn't rearrange the pixels, what people say. <laughs> right. So it doesn't, in that regard, it doesn't really matter. And also, as you know, people's feelings about things change. Yes. You know, 20 years later, they may look at it differently for better or worse. So I think you have to, the key is to just not second guess a potential response to something. You need to be inside of it while you're making it, creating something that you would stand in line to go see or, you know, buy a subscription to see. You, you, you're the audience, you, any, anything else. Um, you've lost where North is. The, the old, one of the, those old uh, axioms is, is to write what you know. And I know you didn't necessarily write this, this one. Uh, and in fact, there's a lot of uh, improvisational uh, material in there as well. But um, it could be argued like, um, great that Steven Soderbergh's doing this, but why is Steven Soderbergh doing a film about three women of a certain age? What, <laughs> how does that relate to your, your life, your interests? Um, what is the connective tissue? What do you, what, what about these, these lives, the story is intrinsically interesting and relevant to your life? Well, I, I really wanted to see these two generations talking to each other in a way that um, was designed to bring out real ideas and real feelings um, that are all around us right now. Although as it turns out, you know, we shot this film last in the fall of 2019 and the world has changed completely. Yeah, so on, a cru on a cruise ship, no less. Yeah, <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a, normally this would be a contemporary, considered a contemporary film. It's really not now. Um, but still these issues of cross-generational um, interaction and, and curiosity um, were interesting to me because I feel like I don't see it that often, even though it's going on all around us. These generations are speaking to each other, but I think it's often reduced to stereotypes and, and jokes. And yeah. um, we were looking for something a little more sincere. Um, so once we agreed this was a basic 
idea that we wanted to pursue, um, we started, you know, trying to put a group together that we thought would create an interesting dynamic. Um, and what's fun about working the way that we were working was if you've, if you've got the right people and the right structure set up for it, um, it's really designed to pull out little surprises and, and accidents of, of speech um, and revelation. And, and I felt like we really had the, the, the right people to do that. And we were very rigorous about how this story was played out. You know, Deborah Eisenberg and I created this, you know, 54 page document, I think, that was very detailed um, about what each scene had to do and, and the subjects being discussed in each scene. And sometimes there would be scripted pieces where we felt this is too important to, to um, ask the actor to invent on, on the spot. Um, so it's your, your, your storm chasing, but in a very sort of structured way. There, there is no, you're not, you know, they say when you're inebriated, do not operate heavy machinery. There was, there was no actor at any point who was being asked to operate the heavy machinery of telling the story. Right. What we were looking for was their voice. And so we didn't tell them, we, we told them what to say. We just didn't tell them how to say it. And that's a, that's a, a distinction I think that's critical because I think that when people hear improvised, it just sounds not professional. Yeah, it sounds lazy when in fact yeah. you're, you're setting them up for success. You're giving them all the tools and then, and then making it feel as real and organic as possible. Yeah, you're hoping to to get the best of of both, really. Yeah, um, and so that's what we were that's what we were trying to grab hold of. Merrill's character is is this writer who's arguably monetized, exploited a a friendship. Um, I'm, I, you know, I wonder, you know, as a as a writer, a filmmaker, a storyteller, is that something you've had to confront? Not to that extreme, but like, you know, you use what you know. You use your friendships, your family, your experiences. Is that something that you have to sometimes wrestle with? Like, can I do a veiled version of this person? Does that jeopardize a a trust, a friendship? Is it something you've confronted? Well, I guess my I guess my default position there would be, you can use anything but the veiled version is always going to be better um, because you can, you can enhance it, you can amplify it, you can take it somewhere that it didn't go in real life and make it more interesting. So Sex Lives was a perfect example of that. People would say, oh, is that autobiographical? I would say, well, it's personal, but nothing in this movie actually happened, nothing. Like I'm, I was just riffing on some general experiences like that. So the key is to make it feel like all of that absolutely happened. But I think it's always better if you can sort of use it and change it for the better. Um, in the case of Alice, Meryl Streep's character, I don't think she felt at that point in her life the need 
to disguise it at all. I mean, it's pretty clear from the conversations in the movie, she just kind of went from Roberta's life right onto the page and didn't really change a lot. That's um, a mistake, perhaps, one of them. Well, she doesn't view it as a mistake. She views it as her right as an artist right. and her obligation as an artist. I mean, she's very, she's a very polarizing <laughs> character, Alice. She can be incredibly generous and, and warm um, towards some people and then just be a complete asshole um, in the next moment. So she's somebody though who has never struggled with this issue of whether somebody's private life um, that you know can be portrayed um, in a one-on-one, one-to-one basis in Alice's mind. Absolutely you can do that. I, I think Alice would have called her character Roberta if if she wasn't convinced that people then wouldn't think it was a novel and she wants to be a novelist. Right. So, you know, it's a, it was a pretty, as a setup, um, Deborah and I were happy with this, this kind of, you know, past transgression uh, that they've been hanging on to for all these years. I can understand how somebody would feel burned by that. Did it take you, was there a warning curve for you in learning how to direct actors? Uh, you know, different kinds of actors require different kinds of direction. Um, could you have directed Merrill 30 years ago? Does it require a different set of skills and experiences that you had to accumulate? Um, well, we'll never know the answer to that question. But luckily, when I was younger and growing up in um, Baton Rouge and starting to make films, um, I'd gotten connections to a lot of the students who were part of the drama department at LSU. So, I was hanging around actors and and became friendly with them. And so always felt very comfortable around them and enjoyed being around them. And I was making these short films in which sometimes I would be employing them. So I think that's the, when I hear stories um, about actor, director, misunderstandings or clashes, um, I, I think it typically is, is, has its origins in not really taking on the, the other person's, the full extent of the other person's role. Um, I'm very sympathetic and empathetic, whichever applies, um, to actors because I think it's a very difficult thing to do well. I think it's a very vulnerable thing to do well. And so um, I'm very appreciative of this and want to make sure that they're in an environment uh, that, that has a net, um, but not too many obstacles uh, for them to, to bump into. Um, so I've always, that, that's always been my approach and I'm and I I want to hear ideas and I I expect I give them a lot of freedom and I give them a lot of responsibility right um are you in retrospect sad that your star making performance in Schizopolis didn't lead to Hollywood stardom and, and further acting opportunities uh well um 
there's really no good answer to that. <laughs> that, other than to say that won't be happening again. And, you know, that was just such a unique circumstance. I have no, I have no memory of giving that performance, literally, none. Um, I have a memory of making the movie and being on the set and making the movie, but I have no memory of being in, in any specific moment of performance. It was a completely unconscious experience in that regard, which I don't think honestly I could reproduce. That was just a very specific time in my life and in my career where I felt that had to be done. Um, I don't feel like that now. You've, you've been tinkering with the edit of some of your films, including yeah. Skitsopolis, one of the ones you've been looking at. Is that yeah. odd to look at that performance in that film in particular? Yes. <laughs> yeah, only in the sense of, like I said, I have no memory of doing that. That's amazing. That's remarkable. Um, which is, like I said, a good thing. It's because it's, if, I'd, if I hadn't been that um, immersed in it, I think I would have become self-conscious and that would have ruined it. It's whatever you want to say about it. It's a very unself-conscious performance. <laughs> yes. That it's, so anyway. I took this um, conversation as an opportunity to go back and watch Sex, Lies, and Videotape for the first time in, in a while. Um, and I don't know if it's I, that I just seen Let Them All Talk or that I'm overthinking things, but there are actually some some thematic similarities in these films. I mean, they're about friends keeping secrets and betrayals and what's left unsaid in a relationship. Um, is that something, is that something that even occurs to you? Has it occurred to you? Is it just one of those themes that will pop up because it's just part of the human condition and fascinates you. Anything to be made of that? Two people in a room. <laughs> I'm, I've always been fascinated by this. I will always be fascinated by it. Um, I just think some of the most profound um, ideas and uh, especially ideas for action have started with two people in a room. Um, so I'm a big believer in its dramatic power and its dramatic potential, and I'm not afraid of it. It doesn't, it, it doesn't make me feel like, oh, it's, it's going to feel like a play or it's not really a movie. I just think two people in a room is endlessly fascinating, um, only more so as, as we try to create a more transparent social culture. Um, two people in a room now takes on... Uh, a lot of weight. So yeah, you're absolutely right to draw a direct line from Sex Lies to this film. But I would argue to anything I've made. Sure. Really. It is fascinating to look at Sex Lies. I'm sure this is the kind of stuff you're grappling as you're writing the, this new one, um, because the idea of revealing intimacy on camera, as you well know, is that was not normal back then. That was like, that was really revealing some intercore of yourself and that Spader's character was able to get extracted out of people. And now it's the norm. Now it's literally all we do is just reveal everything to a disgusting degree, arguably. And that must be um, fascinating to kind of wrestle with that same theme, but in a much different world. Yeah, I mean, it seems so quaint now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but like Victorian. Um, <laughs> And, and you're right, how, how, quickly, how quickly we abandoned on some, on some, you know, broad level, 
um, the idea of of privacy or secrecy or of of two people sharing something and only those two people sharing it moving into you know what we see now where um, the most intimate things you can experience are are considered um, you know absolutely normal to to share it with people that you don't know. Well, that's what gets you the likes. That's what gets you the follow. The more intimate you are, yeah, the more revealing look, you are. And look, I am a big believer in the fact that stories in, in certain contexts can be a very, very effective tool for healing or for evolution um, and enlightenment. So uh, it, it's, it's not that I, I would ever say to somebody, why are you telling that particular story that's, that's so painful i think it's i think what we're grappling with now is the diminishment in in a story that's potentially powerful and important by the noise of everything else right you know as 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 we move forward as as nate silver would probably describe it you know separating signal from noise just becomes increasingly difficult, especially I would think for young people who, especially young people of a certain age, who are trying to look for signals around them, whether it's their parents, their friends, the culture, about what matters. What, 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 are they, what should they be taking on you know, in a serious way and what should they be deflecting? Um, they're the target for so much information. It's, it's really overwhelming. So I, I, I really don't envy um, young, young people having to filter through all of the stuff uh, that's, that's in front of them right now. It's got to be tough. One, one thing that I, I always find striking about your career, and I, I because I think of a lot of filmmakers that kind of silo themselves off and they kind of do their thing and don't maybe engage with other filmmakers, don't go on other filmmakers' sets, et cetera. Um, you seem to embrace this kind of directing community. You've been thanked in over 30 films. You've, you know, you shot second unit on The Hunger Games. You were a camera operator on the Magic Mike sequel. Um, I mean, I'm curious, like, do you find that's just a part of the collaborative art form that would that would you would miss do you learn more as much from working on other people's sets and talking to to david fincher whoever your friends are as you do in making your own stuff well a large part of what makes it fun is the is the social aspect of the work the the, the uniquely social aspect of this particular work i would argue um, I like it and, and I like being around it and creative problem solving is fun. And so um, I've always sought out um, collaborations or opportunities to work with other filmmakers. And, and whenever I can, I, I try to jump on uh, projects with other filmmakers that that seem like interesting or fun or both and and where i feel like i can i can actually contribute um there's some things that 
I'll be approached about and I'll sort of look at the whole thing and just say, I, you, you don't need me. Right. You don't need me on this. You're, you're just go shoot it. I'll, I'll, I'll be a friend of the court and, and, you know, look at edits or whatever, but there's no, I'm not value added here by formally engaging because you're, you're set. There's, so I, I like to be able to contribute something and earn, I, I take credits very seriously. Like, I, it may not be a, an important thing to take seriously, but I just think things should be accurate. And so I don't want my name on something where I didn't do the work that I think that credit um, implies. In the, uh, in the current iteration of Steven Soderbergh, because you are nothing if not an iterative <laughs> filmmaker and artist, um, you're gravitating more towards kind of smaller genre stuff. Was there a time that, you know, you obviously did the Oceans films, which were big, Contagion's a big film, you've done big films. Was there a time that a superhero film was of interest? Was there, there was, I read somewhere that Fantastic Four was something that you explored briefly. Do you oh. recall that at all? No. No, I, I wouldn't have said that just because I'm not, I just didn't read that stuff growing up. Yeah. Um, I think you, I think you really need to, to love it. And like I said, you, you need to be one of those people that, that want to go stand in line for it. I just wasn't that person. And, and I would be second guessing. I would be doing exactly what I was talking about before. Right. I, I wouldn't know where North is because it just wasn't, it wasn't part of my, um, you know, bag of, of interests growing up. So I don't, I don't, I'm not a snob. I like all kinds of stuff. I, I just want to do a good job when I go to work and I would honestly feel um, unable to do a good job if, if I, a, an Oceans movie is as close as I can get to kind of, you know, uh, uh, a superhero movie or something that has slightly um, outsized activity in it. That's, that's as far as I think I can go. Did you, you said before that you were approached at least twice for James Bond though. Was that something that seriously, you seriously considered or you made a play for? Was that something that growing Absolutely. up you had an interest in? Absolutely. Yeah. So did I you, did, did you I, I love that world. And, you know, I think, I think, it, it, that we were, we were at odds about some things that were important. So we had some great conversations and, and it was, it was fun to think about. Um, but we just couldn't, the, 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 you know, the last, the last 10 yards were, 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 we just couldn't do it. Just couldn't figure it out. Without revealing your entire take, I'm just curious what a Steven Soderbergh Bond movie looks like. What's the core, what's the mission statement? What's the... Well, yeah, we'll never know. I mean, <laughs> aspe aspects of it have shown up elsewhere. I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I would say there were, there are things in the haywire that in, in terms of its approach to character and, and, you know, it's not a big movie but there's there's a little bit of activity in it um that's that's a hint at the, at the kind of attitude um that i was looking for but you know look they're you you they're doing very well 
I hope everyone's you know, working. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I hope they're able to figure out um, what to do about the release of I the know. new one. Yeah, I mean, um, they got, they got, they, they were, they really got themselves caught in the worst possible place. It was supposed to come out right as the pandemic was lifting off. And, and now, you know, you don't want to sit on these things. It's going to be very curious. You're, you know, you're obviously doing stuff for HBO Max, whether this, there's a cascade effect where everybody else follows suit for at least the next year or not. I think for, yeah, I think for a year. Yeah. And then, it, and then it'll, it'll, it'll absolutely come back. It has to come back. There's too much, there's too much money um, out there for it not to come back. The trick is going to be, can we convince the government as part of some stimulus package to help the exhibitors uh, weather this over the next 12 months that they're, they're going to need help. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping, I know there's a, there's a plan in place and there is, you know, there are people lobbying for this and NATO um, is gathering support. They really need it. Like it's, I think, you know, it's, it's just a reality that a, a theatrical exhibition business that can't be at full capacity is not really a viable business. So we need to figure out a way to keep the theaters um, alive um, until this comes back. But I'm absolutely convinced this will come back. There's, there's just too much money on the table. Um, <laughs> So it's not, it's not about the romanticism of like, we need the theaters. It's no, it's, there's only one well, way to make a billion dollers. It's a release yes. movie in a theater. <laughs> well, there's the, I mean, economic, economic forces tend to be very, very powerful. Sure. And, and part of their power is that they can be quantified. Now the subjective experience of going to a movie, I would argue as time goes on, continues to become even more unique. Think about the number of activities that you engage in, in which you're only doing one thing for two hours. There's no distraction. There's nothing else going on. You are staring at one thing for two hours, sometimes more. That's getting increasingly rare. And so I think that experience is, is solid. Like, I don't think it's gonna go anywhere. I think people are always whether they can articulate it or not, they're always going to want that. There's something really pleasurable about it. And the fact that you're doing it with a lot of other people, that's pleasurable too. So it's, it's, this is just going to be a really ugly drought, you know, in the U.S. Um, but, you know, it's going to rain again. It will definitely <laughs> rain again. It always does. A couple odds and ends for you, just in looking at, at the many films and experiences you've had. This is not related to a film, but you posted at one point, not, not, not so long ago, a rejection letter of sorts you got from Lucasfilm in 1984. Yeah. What, was, what, were you trying, what were you asking for? What was the pitch? Uh, I, just, I just wanted, uh, I, I put my shorts on a three-quarter inch cassette, and I just wanted to see if somebody would put eyes on it, <laughs> just, to, just, to, just out of curiosity. So I'm... I was I was thrilled to get that letter. <laughs> you kept it clearly. I, you know, it meant something. It was on their stationery. I thought oh, that's that's nice. 
Um, this is random, but I came across this. There was a report. Okay, so let's go back 20 years. Ocean's Eleven. There was a report in Variety that you were close to casting Joel and Ethan Cohen in Ocean's Eleven in the Casey Affleck and Scott Kahn roles. Do you have any recollection of that, Steve? I, I don't, but it doesn't sound like a terrible idea. It sounds amazing, um, <laughs> let's be honest. And I'm sure George had a hand in that because he, he had just worked right. with them. Um, and it, if it didn't, if it didn't get shot down fairly quickly, um, by one of us, uh, they would have shot it down uh, pretty quickly. I'm, I'm yeah, I can't imagine. It seems like a, a pretty. <laughs> hey, but not the worst, guy. not the worst casting idea I've ever heard. I'll say no, that. No, no. Um, here's, here's yeah. the worst. Here's, this was a nightmare I had while we were shooting Kafka. Um, I, 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 always, I always have anxiety dreams when I'm shooting. Um, but in this case, I, I had awakened to discover, to my surprise, because I didn't remember doing this, that I had cast Paul Hogan as Kafka. <laughs> and that I, I arrived on set, and, and this was, it, it was a gradual process of this dawning on me by, the, by what people were saying to me as I approached the set. And I, and I started to feel like something's up. Like the way people are looking at me and talking to me, when I get to set, something's going to be up. And what was up was that Paul Hogan was there <laughs> ready to play that part. Well, and you have been infamously re-editing for a decade this film. Is that what you're doing? Are you inserting Paul Hogan back into this film? No, but I, I'd forgotten about that dream until I dove back into this and, and remembered. I had, a, I, had a, I had a beard at the time, and I woke up in the course of one night, overnight, I woke up and had a, a big white patch in my beard. I was stressed. <laughs> I don't know if it was that night that I had that dream, but uh, yeah, I mean, yeah those fair. are the kinds of dreams I have when I'm shooting. Things, things that can't be solved. The point was I was sitting, I'm like, I can't solve this. There's no way to solve this. I can't fire him. And uh, here we go. The answer is to embrace it because that's a version of the film, frankly, I would enjoy in, in some way as well. It wouldn't have been boring. <laughs> The uh, infamous retirement a few years back of Steven Soderbergh, did it, what did it do for you coming out of it? You've been pretty prolific, to say the least, um, since the Nick and getting back into features. Um, do you find, did you reorient your approach to filmmaking, your attitude? What, what's the most important post and pre-retirement difference between the way you're approaching material? Well, I think I'm just, in a very basic way, confused the business with the job. Right and um, allowed my frustrations with one part of it to bleed into the other part of it, uh, which was stupid, but I, I don't know. That's what happened. Um, what the Nick did for me was re-energize re um, my love for the job, just for that job, the being being on a set doing that job, um, when we started up on the neck, um, I thought, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, I just really, for I'd, I'd allowed myself to sort of, not get disconnected, but um, uh, distracted a little bit psychologically by 
my frustrations with the way the business functions um, economically, sometimes creatively, sometimes. So like one week into the Nick, I was totally back into wanting to work as much as possible. So uh, maybe that was just a necessary step for me to get there. Maybe there probably should have been um, a, a smarter way to get there. Um, it's not, it's not fun to, to walk back such definitive statements. And I promise if I do it again, that um, I'll accompany it with some comments that will guarantee no one will ever hire me again. You're going to go out with a, a bang? Just, yeah, I'll do something that, that really is scorched earth and, and, and that will not even allow for the option for me to come back, I promise. I feel like the fear of any artist, and, and I, you know, I talk to a lot of filmmakers, is diminishing returns as a career continues. We've seen a lot of great filmmakers where like the last few films, they lost the steps. Something is missing. And, and I feel like that's part of why Quentin has this like, you know, 10 and out. He's not going to let himself see, produce anything that's less than the utmost quality. Is, is that part of the reason for yourself? Because your stuff is so dynamic and so interesting and always... It, 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 it's experimental. You're trying new formats. You're trying new approaches. Um, is that part of the reason to keep it fresh, to, to, to make sure you, you stay sharp? Well, certainly if you get a group of filmmakers together for any length of time, that subject comes up a lot. Yeah. Because nobody, nobody wants to be perceived at a certain point in their career as, as you know, having lost the thread. Um, so how do you not lose the thread, Stephen? Look, What's the secret? I don't, I, I don't, I try not to, I try not to think of the choices I make, um, beyond the, 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 the near term and, and how I feel, um, about the timing of it all. So I'm, I'm my, you know, my metabolism is such that, that I, I need things in front of me um, to, to keep me moving forward. And so I don't, I don't think, I, I, as a result, there isn't as much psychic real estate given over to how is this going to look later. Right. Um, I just know that I get the best results from myself when I work quickly and it feels more like a sport um, than, than the creation of a dissertation. Um, that's just me. That's just, I just know that from experience. The longer I have to, to stew on it, that's different than working on it, stewing on it, uh, picking at it, uh, the worse things tend to get. I, I tend to, I, I'm much more of a tag artist in that regard. Um, that doesn't mean I didn't set up a, a, a structure and a plan but I need to, I need to move quickly. Um, if that ends up mitigating this, this potential slide into something that feels um, repetitive or complacent, uh, then, then that would be good. But that's not the reason that I'm working uh, sort of at that RPM. That's more just a personal, a personal need 
in order for me to get a result that, that I'm happy with. I, I'm always amazed when I see that year-end list um, that you always have like a cut of the film, like a day after you've shot the film. Do you already have a cut of No Sudden Move, the film you've just shot? Are you already looking in the edit room? Yeah, yeah. We just, um, over the weekend, actually had a little friends and virtual friends and family uh, screening of the first cut. So um, I'm collecting notes now. Is that the hardest, hardest screen, the first screening? Yeah, typically. Um, what you're looking for is is just some consistency in the responses. I mean, nobody nobody ever sees a first cut and goes, walk away, you're done. Right. Um, what you're hoping is that there's a couple of things that everybody seems to be bumping on and they're fixable. That's what you're hoping. That's that's that's, you know, because there, there are certain things that people can say um, if they're having a problem with that aren't going to be fixable. Right. That are, that are so wound into the DNA. Um, if somebody goes, oh, I hate the person you cast as that lead. You know, that's a problem. Yeah. Can you put Paul Hogan in instead of David Harbour there? Well, if you have enough money, you can do it. <laughs> he's, no got, he's got a, didn't he? I saw an ad for he's got a new... Movie. Crocodile Dundee, kind of a, th I think, I don't think it's like officially a, a sequel, but he's still banking on that image persona in some way. Oh, uh, uh, he's got at he least, should. he's got at least one set of eyeballs. It's going to be on that. <laughs> got two sets right here. <laughs> and do you know what you're, what you're uh, planning to shoot next? Should I hold out any hope for the long awaited Clio 3D musical? <laughs> no, probably not. I mean, not in, not soon. Um, there, there are two things. Um, that I won't jinx, that, um, that I want to do. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping literally this week, I'm gonna get the word on the first one, the one that would be um, at the front of the queue, uh, but I haven't gotten word yet. So, um, you know, I wanna, I wanna keep going. I'm hoping by the spring, um, things will have changed to an extent that the, the, just the pure scale, the scale of, of right. the COVID protocols for production um, have been diminished a little bit. Um, that's really, you know, it's, and it's going to get, we're in this weird, as you know, we're in the middle of a, a, another surge um, and you're, we talked about this when we were doing the negotiations this summer to create the the industry protocols of the sort of public relations battle that we should be prepared for when we're going to work and trying to make movies and TV shows while other people are trying to figure out how to get tested. Now, we're privately sourcing all of the personnel and and the materials but it's it's i said you know we need to we need to talk about what we're going to do if somebody comes after us and says hey are they stealing from the public right well the same thing's going to happen on the vaccine like you know inevitably like wait why did every sports team and big budget movie get the vaccine before my grandmother like that's yeah. a, that's you don't nope, want that they better have a good answer yeah. um and that's what i was saying is we better have a good answer 
beyond, like I said, we're not, we're not pulling from the public stockpile, but it's still the optics of it are, are you know, potentially fuzzy yeah. if, if we're not clear. But hopefully, look, every, all of my, all of my colleagues that I worked with on contagion who are in the middle of this in a very significant way are very, very bullish about the vaccines. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that that all, you know, takes, takes its course. There's going to need to be a huge public relations campaign uh, about it. To make sure everyone actually takes it, yeah. Yeah, well, just to to have a real conversation with people about expectations, you know, expectations. What what you know what what does ninety five point four percent mean? What does that mean? Like like people need to know this stuff in a very clear way, um, and and there are legitimate questions that need to be answered. You know, a vaccine is a sort of a weak version of the virus that creates a response in your body that makes you immune. Now, if you happen to be one of those people that if you caught it without the vaccine would have a, a very acute and fatal response, what, what is your response to the vaccine gonna be? Right. Are you, you know, they just need to know the answers to those kinds of questions. So I hope, I hope that, you know, the government and the state, however this gets rolled out, you know, really sits down and thinks deeply about how to message all of this. Because the, the, the quickest path to this thing being, you know, it's never, and by the way, talk about expectations. This is not going to be a lifetime immunity. Exactly. You're going to have to get these shots occasionally. We still don't even know when. Two years, four years, we don't know. But one thing we do know is nobody I've talked to says this thing's going to work forever. So that's something that people need to be aware of. And the, the faster we get to 80% of the population vaccinated, the faster this thing starts to drop and, and go away. How quickly did the studio come to you and say, well, contagion's being watched by a gajillion people right now. Maybe you, you want to explore a follow-up. Now is the time. Does that interest you at all? <laughs> No, well, not in a literal sense. I mean, I've, I've, got, um, I've got a project in development that's a, that Scott Burns um, is working with me on um, that's a, a kind of philosophical sequel to Contagion, um, but in a different context. It's not, it, it's... Not the same it, characters, not the same... You, you, yeah, you yeah. look at the two of them as kind of paired but in they're 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 very they have very different hair colors, um, so we have been Scott and I were talking about well what's the next, what is the next iteration of a contagion type story? So we have been working on that. We should probably hot foot it a little bit. Um, I could talk to you for hours, sir. Thank you so much for the generous time today. Congratulations on the new film. Let them all talk on HBO Max. Um, and yeah, seriously consider Paul Hogan for all of these variety of projects that you're working on. He's still viable. He's still talented. He's hungry. As are you. You look healthy to me. It's great. Um, <laughs> thanks. Dylan. I really appreciate no, it. No, thanks again. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. 
I'm Daisy Ridley and I definitely wasn't pushed to do this by Josh. <laughs>